Welcome to the Total Car Score Podcast, bringing you the world of cars from inside the car. And now your hosts, Carl Brower, Lauren Fix, and Javier Mota. Well, another week in the second year of the pandemic, but finally we're starting to get good news in some ways and some not so good news in some other ways, Lauren, because of all the electric cars. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Excellent. Yeah, it's, Thank it's you. cold here. Let me tell you, I've been busy on the Weather Channel talking about probably like nine hits in the last, we call, we call them hits, appearances, shall we say, uh, in the last two days. So it's been a little bit crazy. Yeah, I've been seeing you. So how are you, Carl? Good, you know. Uh, uh, sometimes I get pretty sick of this state. Actually, quite often I get pretty sick of this state, but <laughs> you do try to try to revel in its benefits when they arrive and uh looking around the rest of the country it's like okay my uh water pipes still work and my power is still on so i guess i'm winning today that's a good thing i have a generator so that we will never lose power again we had an october storm here in buffalo knocked out power for like 10 days so my husband didn't just put in a generator he put in one that could probably light up the whole street so it's like tim allen you know it's like this huge generac and of course now they've restricted that in my in my city but <laughs> It's yeah, like I mean, when it kicks on and tests every week, it's like the whole house shakes. It's like, oh, okay, did you have to go this big? <laughs> so finally, those news, the weather news and the, the automotive industry news are like merging because what we saw in Dallas this week was really, really crazy. All the, as you said, pipes uh, frozen, but not only pipes, turbines like were supposed to be generating electricity and they got frozen, so they didn't work. So it's really getting to a point where we have to start thinking. And then you go on the other side. I don't know how many manufacturers went to announce that they're going 100% electric as, as soon as 2025. So is that possible? What do you think, Carl? Well, it depends on where and 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 which manufacturer, right? I mean, Tesla could do it by 2025. But, um, <laughs> you know, uh, Ford just said they'd have all of their um, European market vehicles there by 2025 and or sorry by 2030 and that's more possible than the u.s because we have big wide open areas and big trucks that like to drive across them and none of those people are going to want to stop every uh, two to three hundred miles and wait half an hour 45 minutes to have their car charge up so europe it's more possible and i think ford if they want to make that claim that they can be there by 2030 and of course you know, there's the specifics. Well, it's only in Europe, but but the overall story is: look, five years ahead of GM. So they're all playing kind of their one-upmanship uh, PR games right now, too, when it comes to these EV claims. Yeah, yeah but is no. that going to be reality, Carl? I mean, think about it. You know, they're saying Jaguar all electric, which is really foolish, and no SUVs, which is even more mind-blowing to me because it's their number one selling product. It's like McDonald's saying we're not going to make hamburgers anymore. Okay, and uh, you're going to live off of fries. So, I mean, you really have to think about, from a business standpoint, are they saying this for stock value? Are they stay, saying this for consumer impact, for the Me Too? I mean, when you really look at the big picture, are we legislating into submission? I mean, that that's the big question. And I think that when you look at Ford, GM, Jaguar, and others saying this, I don't think it's actually going to happen in reality. And later on in the show, uh, Javier and I had a chance to talk to someone with Volkswagen who has a completely different perspective on this. And, and I think that we have to keep in mind that when you're using av gas, av aviation gasoline for a helicopter, which is extremely expensive to operate by the hour, to go out and spray de-icer fluid on windmill propellers to get the motors unfrozen because they're very expensive. And if the fiberglass 
blades of those windmills crack, they have to be buried in the ground. And solar panels covered in snow and ice, so they're not doing their job. Obviously, the base energy, and I know, Carl, you and I talk about this like every day, but the base energy has to be natural gas, coal, nuclear power, something, but it cannot survive solely on uh, wind and solar. Yeah, and then that's the problem. Even with the infrastructure that we have today and the amount of cars that they think they're going to be selling or the levels that, that we're seeing now, let's say like 17 million cars again, pre-order electric in five years, is the grid going to be ready for that, Carl? I don't think so. I mean, from what you're seeing just to uh, this week in Dallas and other parts of Texas, right? Yeah, and and as everyone likes to note, in super progressive California, where they want to go all electric as soon as possible, they can't handle the current electric load with 5% of the market being EVs. So you add 95% more of the market and make it 100%, uh, how's this state going to deal with it? Now, you know, there's claims that they're trying to set up the infrastructure, they're building out this and they're building out that, but, you know, forgive me if I'm not 100% confident in California's ability to build something. There used to be this thing called high-speed rail. Did you guys ever hear about that? Anyways. Oh, yeah. Uh, I a couple billion dollars and it didn't go anywhere. Yeah. Well, Japan yeah. has it since 1968. <laughs> yeah. It's, true. it's really, really crazy. But uh, anyway, at the same time, more companies, General Motors, that we mentioned uh, a couple of weeks ago, that they made their own announcement that we quest- I questioned if that was just like for PR. Now they announced two more models, the Bolt EV, the new second generation, I guess, and the kind of SUV. And then Toyota, which has been more lenient on the uh, hybrid and the plug-in hybrid and the hydrogen cars with Amirai, announced two electric cars. So everybody is, is coming to that uh, conclusion, I guess. Like, it's, it's really, really crazy. Also, Lauren, you mentioned uh, Jaguar and that weird decision. That must have come from... India, right? From the Tata group that owned them. I mean, because otherwise, I mean, they, I don't think they will do it on their own. No, they, they're actually having a huge layoff right now um, at uh, Jaguar Land Rover. And it's kind of sad talking about 200 jobs here in the U.S. that are salaried jobs. Um, they're, the sales are down. I mean, sales are down for everyone. And then we have a chip shortage, which makes it even worse because you have to remember that the ceramic and the chip comes from Norway and the metal materials come from different mines around the world. And it still has to be put together in a package and then shrink wrapped in a certain way. And then they have to be shipped to the factory. So if there's a gap in this, you can't sell a car if it's not completely finished or it doesn't function. So I, I think in the big picture, when we look at What's going on? I think that the auto industry is trying to say we're 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 the cool new tech. We're the we're the new Tesla on the block. But I think they've got some big surprises coming. And I, I know Carl and I talk about this every day, and I know you do as well, Javier. And we all have different outlets. And uh, and I think it's important to note that although it sounds great on the surface, in reality, this EV thing is not going to function. The bigger picture has to be a mix. There's just no options. Yeah, and they say they're going to stop selling the cars. But Carl, you're not giving up your <laughs> internal combustion cars by 2025, are you? Well, that's the funny thing to think about is is to consider how many people are going to hang on to their internal combustion cars to fight this thing. Now, you know what scares me, though, guys? There's a whole other level, which I, I, I completely admit is frightening which, you know, not that the government would ever abuse its power by me, by any means, but in mm. theory, no. if they decided to uh, say, let's, I don't know, restrict the production of gasoline and oil 
and suddenly gas was five, seven, ten dollars a gallon. Well, we already saw them cut one of our supplies for 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 fuel, and so and, and guess what's happened to, happened to the price of fuel in the last two months? So you could let all the people keep their cars, but if it's going to be ten, fifteen, twenty-five dollars a gallon to run them, they'll just become you know these kind of cool collectible things that sit in your garage and don't don't operate very often because it takes Carol, who does hundreds that hurt? of dollars. Who does that, of all the people in this entire country, United States, even North America, who does that hurt the most when gas prices go seven to ten dollars a gallon? Does that hurt you and I? No, it hurts Not. the poor people. Hurts the poor That's people. Right. As always. Right. And then electric and electricity yeah. costs goes up too, right? Mm-hmm. So everything goes up because everything has to be moved. All the the food, all the the goods that have to go yeah. from California to Florida, everything will be exponentially more expensive because it's part of the production and distribution process. Right. Yeah. Right. And so I think people, it's easy. It's easy to say, "Oh, this is a great idea," but who are you hurting? You're not hurting the wealthy people, and you're not hurting the guy who just spent thirty-five million dollars at Barrett Jackson buying the most expensive Ferrari known to mankind, or RM auctions, or Mecum. Those guys don't care. They'll find right. a way around. They have dealer plates, whatever. They're going to drive their cars. They can afford it. It's the guy who actually has to work for a living or the person who's got to get a single mom who's got to get her child to the doctor who can't afford anything. And that's all she has is her $1,000 Ford Tempo that's been running well. You're going to take yeah. that away from her? She can't afford a new car. The insurance alone would be more expensive. Right. Yeah, everything would be more. I mean, we actually talked in the first uh, show this year, our prediction was, more electric, more expensive cars to come, and it's coming to reality just in two months, <laughs> according to these announcements. Yeah, well, that's what I've been saying. I've been saying for years, you know, that we've got to get price parity. But I've realized in the last probably a couple of years, when I look at the average price of a new car, we're going to get price parity not by EV prices coming down, but by every other kind of car's price going up. You know, and it's like, oh yeah, mm-hmm. everything everything will eventually cost as much as expensive electric cars, which is a redundant statement, by the way, cost mm-hmm. right now. And uh, it's like, okay, well, that didn't really help anyone, did it, to just price all the vehicles out of out of uh, reach for everyone. But now it's like, oh, well, now EVs and ice ice vehicles cost the same. It's like, yeah, and they all are too expensive, and nobody can afford them. Right, and that what happens is the average car on the road today is between twelve and fourteen years old. Previous to the pandemic, it was about ten. People were thinking about car sharing, mass transit. But as soon as all the pandemic hit, everybody bolted. The used car market caught on fire, ten to fifteen percent higher. 15% or more on pickup trucks. So people that wanted to actually start their own business, woodworking, plumbing, whatever. And so now you're looking at people thinking, I'm just going to keep my car longer and I'm going to repair it maintenance. Would they do it themselves or God forbid they don't do it at all because then it puts them at risk or they hire, you know, they find a local shop to do it. So, I mean, this, it's definitely going to change everything. And maybe companies like uh, AutoZone and Pep Boys will be making a lot more money. Very interesting conversation, and uh, we're unfortunately we're running out of time for this segment. But uh, I guess we're gonna keep talking about this topic for many, many months and years, at least 2025. When we'll see if this is true. <laughs> we'll be back. the show and uh, with cars that we are actually driving uh, in reality, uh, either gasoline, plug-in, hybrid, whatever. So we have this idea. And as you know, the the show is called Total Car Score. And I want to let Carl explain that and how um, we got to this point. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, the show's got this name, Total Car Score. And a lot of people might wonder, why is it 
why is a podcast named Total Car Score? And it comes from uh, a trademark that I've got and uh, a kind of a concept that I created years ago, about 10 years ago now, that was, if you think about it, it's kind of like Rotten Tomatoes or Kayak, you know, the idea of aggregation, you go out and you get a bunch of different scores for something, for the same thing from different sources, and then you put them all together. And if you do that to multiple things, you can start to kind of get uh, a total score that something might get, you know, like if you had all the scores across the industry that have ratings for vehicles and you put them into one single rating, you just average them across everything and you'd use the same treatment for every car across all the sources, you'd start to get the total car score that a vehicle has across the industry. And then if you have the total car score for all the midsize SUVs, it starts to get a ranking. It's like, oh, really, when you average across the industry, the Jeep Cherokee, Jeep Grand Cherokee seems to be uh, one of the top ones, you know, or the Honda Pilot seems to be one of the top ones. When you look at all the different people that rate cars, all the different outlets that rate cars, and then you average the scores that they give them for each of the cars. Uh, and you do that across an entire vehicle segment. So I created a website called totalcarscore.com. And I think it was a pretty good idea. Uh, it's way too long of a story to go into during a podcast <laughs> uh, as to why it did or did not work. But um, that's where the name comes from. And uh, again, I think in today's world, there's probably more appreciation than ever for the idea that you take a large sum of data, a large supply of data, and you somehow crunch it together to tell you an interesting or, or useful story. But that's what we were doing oh. 10 years ago. Based on that, we're going to get the total car score between the three of us, at least, <laughs> for, uh, for one car. And I thought it's a good idea because that's, I mean, again, the name of the show and um People want to hear about what we think about the, some of the new models. So we picked the Genesis GV80 finalist for the North American Utility Vehicle of the Year. Came second, if I remember well, uh, behind the Mustang Mach-E. And uh, Lauren, why don't you start and give, give us your, your opinion of that car? I really was impressed with the Genesis GV80. You know, we've all driven the Genesis lineup of sedans. And so we kind of had an expectation of premium luxury uh, with with the attempt to break into that German market to compete with, you know, Jaguar as well and Volvo. But when they came out with this SUV, the first thing I noticed, and the first thing I think everyone notices when you walk up to it, you see this really impressive design. And you can see where the German designers that they've sort of commandeered from other brands have really come together. I was really impressed with the design really well done as far as the interface and the technology. Um, and although a few areas that were lacking overall, the performance was great. I preferred the V6, obviously, uh, but you can seat five or you can seat seven. And the horsepower was good and the fuel economy was great. And when you're looking at who they're competing with, I was pretty impressed with the product, especially when it starts at the four-cylinder turbo engine at $48,900. And I know they're going to sell these like hotcakes. It sort of reminds me of the Kia Telluride and the Palisade. When they hit the market, it was so impressive and strong that I think consumers are just standing in line for them. And I think you're going to see that again with the GV80. For me, it's uh, the same thing. Like the design is striking. You see it immediately and you see that it's something different. It doesn't look exactly the same as many other SUVs. And the packaging that the whole Hyundai group does, all the technology, everything, like the list is like 40 items all included in the same price. And that's very smart because the consumer doesn't have to like fight for this or the sunroof or the big screen or whatever. So for me, that's really, really smart. And as you said, starting at 48,900, which, and, and, and here is where 
I have a little issue because, as you, you mentioned, the Telluride and the Palisade, this time they top at the same price. So where do you where do you go? You get the, the most expensive Kia or Hyundai or the least expensive Genesis. And they're like pretty similar. I'm not going to say like the more expensive Genesis doesn't have more, but I mean, you get to that dilemma or like the gap between regular brand and luxury brand is very, very small now. But anyway, uh, they go up to 59150 for a 3.5 turbo and then the advanced 65 and $50. So they compete, as you mentioned, uh, the Audi Q8, the BMW X5, Mercedes-Benz GLE, Volvo XC90, and Jaguar F-Pace, soon to be discontinued by Jaguar Plants <laughs> and the Jaguar F-Pace checkered flag edition. So Carl, a lot of competition, but don't you agree that the pricing, the packaging, and, and all they do, how, what they offer, give them an advantage, I think, even though the name might not be very recognized by many consumers yet. Well, it's a similar tactic that, you know, a certain brand called Lexus tried doing, you know, started doing about uh, 30, no, 40, yeah, 30 years ago, uh, late late 80s, uh, when they introduced a luxury vehicle that had all the kind of basic same layout as the German luxury cars, rear drive, V8, big luxurious sedan, uh, the LS 400, but at a markedly lower price and really completely on par or in some ways even superior to the German ones. Now, plenty of people, I can still remember my dad being one of them saying, yeah, yeah, I'm going to buy a Toyota luxury car. Come on now. You know, he, he didn't, he didn't give it much, much, uh, credence, but certainly the brand is undeniably successful 30 years later. You can't deny the success of a brand like Lexus. I think we've seen some other brands struggle. Uh, two of them that I would throw out there maybe are Infinity and Acura that were Japanese luxury brands. It's not like they aren't selling cars, but you know, you look at the volume of sales and how much those sales have or have not grown since those brands were introduced and uh, versus someone like Lexus. And it seems like there's still a, it's still a bit of a challenge to get the kind of volume that I'm sure those guys would love to be getting out of those premium brands. And now you've got a Korean-based car company like Hyundai offering a premium brand like Genesis. Um, I think the only way you even have a shot is to just so over-deliver like Lexus did on that first LS 400 30 years ago that you can start to break through the skepticism of a non-German uh, or now maybe a non-Japanese luxury brand like Lexus. Um, and I think that's exactly what they're doing. They're just, they're, they've cranked it up. Everyone wondered why they launched a luxury division without any SUVs because in case you had noticed, SUVs were the hot ticket. Now here comes Genesis and all they've got are sedans. Uh, but they finally did an SUV and they landed really solidly. Uh, they landed a big, big kind of bomb right in the middle of the, of the um, uh, segment. And I think the pricing, like you've said, the styling, the refinement, the features, um, I think the quality of the interior materials. I mean, even the like standard one is fine. And I remember I was in one of the top trim ones and I'm looking up at the headliner, which looks like this great Alcantara leather. I'm, I'm, then I start touching it and I'm like, going, okay, this feels like a Bentley. That's like Bentley level yeah, headliner material up there. So that's what you have to do if you want a chance. And uh, I think all three of us would know that despite some of their troubles, again, like 30 years ago when they first entered the market, uh, both Kia and Hyundai on every level, including the Genesis brand, have just cranked things up over the last 20 years. And uh, they've all, all of those divisions at each of their level that they try to compete at compete very well. Yeah. So if we were going to give a score of, uh, let's say, five stars, what would you be your score, Lauren? 
Uh, I would give it five stars. I think they did a great job. And if you're thinking about a luxury three-row SUV and you're thinking, I don't know if I want to spend the money for a German car, the 10-year, 100,000-mile warranty pushes it to the top. Carl? Yeah, I'd probably give it four and a half stars at least. I think, uh, like Lauren says, there's it's hard to find fault with it. Um, it is still a new brand. Uh, you're not going to get the same reaction that you're going to get from your uh, your wealthy friends and neighbors when you tell them you bought a Genesis versus a Mercedes or a BMW or an Audi or a Jaguar. Uh, but um, I don't think uh, that really should matter. And if you're smart, it shouldn't matter. So um, I think the Genesis, yeah, it's 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 everything. All of its traditional longstanding competitors want to be or are, are uh, but at a better price. Yeah, I'm going to give them five, two. So there you have it. 14.5 score, total car score for the Genesis GV80. Uh, and there, there it is, our first uh, review here in the show using the, the total car score name. So, Carl, I think you're actually going out to test drive something right now, right? So, Yeah, I get to go drive the new Volkswagen Atlas Cross Sport, which uh, I'm very excited about because it's like the sporty cool kids version of the Atlas, which is also very cool. I, I was always surprised how much interior space that thing offered. It, it's got a huge interior and not a very big exterior footprint, but the Atlas Cross Sport is even more dynamic. Yeah. So that's where I'm headed. Okay. Well, uh, we all remember that a year ago, almost exactly like two weeks shy of that, we were in Vancouver driving that car for the very first time. So we thought that it would be cool for you to go and drive that car. And we will do the score for that one next week. But in this next segment, we're going to talk to Hayne Schaefer, who is the Senior Vice President of Product and Strategy for Volkswagen in the North America. And uh, we're going to talk about that and what's coming up. And as Lauren said, like their very unique strategy in the electrification of their life. So we'll be back with that. Here we, here we are back for the last segment of this show. And as we were saying, we are coming up to the first anniversary of the last trip we took with Volkswagen. It was for the then new Atlas Crossport. And Hayne Schaffer, the senior vice president of Product and Strategy, was there with us. So here you are again with us. So, Hayne, how are you? Yeah, very good. Good to talk to you. Uh, been quite a Strange and interesting here, but uh, at least very good to to touch base with you and talk cars again. I know it's been really crazy, and and, and just can't believe that it's been a year, right, Lauren? Oh, it's it's unreal. I mean, Carl or Carl and Javier and I, we were driving, flying like what three hundred days a year. We were uh, gone. around that. Yeah, it, well, you, I think you were worse than we were because you were doing more <laughs> international, but. It, you know, especially with the North American Car and Truck of the Year, you know, we're, we're driving everything we can and reviewing it for our outlets and, of course, now our podcast. And now suddenly it's like we're all home and cars are being delivered to us. It's very strange. Yeah. So, Hayne, obviously um, the time is still going. The calendar is running. The cars are coming out of the, of the factory. So we've been having some news from Volkswagen. Can you give us a, an update? Yeah, I think I think Javier. Obviously, we business needs to continue. The, as as they say, the show needs to go on. Um, we've uh, we've had to find new ways and, and interesting processes to make sure that we still keep our, our launches on track. Um, we've had to find more innovative digital ways to talk about some of these cars, which we which we've tried to do. Um, I think the good news is, even though 2020 was very much disrupted by COVID, 
um, we still managed to keep a lot of our 2021 plans on track. And that's something we're quite excited about. Uh, 2021 is going to be a, a, a really exciting year for the VW brand. Um, we basically are either revamping or adding new cars to our entire compact segment. Um, and probably the two highlights of the show, I guess, is the, the imminent launch of the ID4, our first all-electric SUV. Uh, that's followed up by a new compact SUV in the, in the A-compact segment, the, the new, all-new Volkswagen Taos. Um, and then from there, we refresh also the, the Tiguan. Um, we also have a facelifted uh, Jetta arriving towards the back end of the year. And then, of course, last but not least, uh, we're all waiting in anticipation for the all-new uh, Mark 8 Golf GTI and Golf R. So it's going to be a, a, an exciting but a very busy year for us. Yeah. Do we get the Golf R here? Are we going to get the Golf R in the U.S.? You got me all excited. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, hell yes, we are. <laughs> oh, good. We, we've, we've got it. We've got it at the moment. or we, We've run out of it in the Generation Mark 7. It was a, a very, very successful car for us. Um, we've got a, a real cult following, um, you know, that, that really buys that vehicle. It's a very special car for us. It's one of our... One of our gems in the in the kist, um, and and we've we've worked very hard to make sure that both the GTI and Golf R in the next generation make their way to the US. So what we're losing in the US is only the regular Golf, right? Correct. Yeah. So basically, I think the question we normally get is, you know, why why not bring the 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 balance of the TSI derivatives? Um, I think the big challenge for us has been, I think a obviously the the compact uh, hatch segment in the United States has shrunk and shrunk and shrunk. Um, and B, obviously, as you've had these emerging little SUVs pop up, um, you know, priced anywhere between eighteen and thirty thousand dollars, it becomes very difficult uh, to be competitive with with a hatchback when people are desiring SUVs. So we looked at kind of where an imported Golf TSI, I think, would land in the United States. Um, and I think at those price points, there's just such a, a plethora of SUVs, including probably where we will sell the new, you know, the new Volkswagen Taos. So. From a from a Golf TSI perspective, that that didn't really make sense for us to to reintroduce those in the Mark Eight generation, but of course, you know, Golf GTI, Golf R, those are the heart and soul of the Volkswagen brand. So we fought very hard to make sure that even though the hatchbacks are on the decline, those kind of uh, you know those poster children for for what VW stands for had to come uh, to the US in the Generation Eight. Yeah, and uh, both are gonna come back with a manual transmission still, right? Hey, so that's something. That's something we're very, very, very proud of. Um, I think we, we pride ourselves in having been in the past also the driver's brand. Um, and for this reason, we fought quite hard to get both the, the R and the GTI in stick shift um, and in also DSG, um, much like our, our Jetta GLI today. So so still three, three stick shift performance cars available in the VW stable, which we're very proud of. That's great. That's the best news I've heard all day. I want you to know that. <laughs> Thanks, no, I, as a three-pedal person, and I have a lot of three-pedal cars, you know, I think people should learn to drive those. I mean, especially kids. You're not, you're certainly not texting while driving. You're focusing on the, the skill of driving and enjoying it. You don't get that same enjoyment, in my opinion, without actually placing the power where you want it. So I'm very grateful that you're not just bringing back the Golf R, but a manual, which is like fabulous. Yeah, yeah fabulous. no, you're preaching. You're preaching to the converted. I've got a 2004 Mark IV R32 uh, in the garage as well. Uh, that comes out on weekends, and and I have. Uh, I'm an absolute fan of the three pedal, no doubt. So That's hey, great. we started the show today talking about a lot of news on the EV side. I mean, like it seems that every day now, uh, different. Uh, 
OEM is coming up with the news that they're going all electric and all that. You are not going all electric, but you are taking very important steps into the electrification of the brand. Uh, talk us about a little bit of the ID4. I driven it uh, briefly uh, in December here in Miami, and I was very, very surprised, really, really pleasantly surprised with it. But tell us uh, what makes this car different against yeah. the competition. Yeah, I think I think what for us is very exciting is and and I mean obviously you know we we've had a lot of strategic discussions with the headquarters in Wolfsburg, um, and what we really try to what we really wanted to try and do was to target I I would say arguably the largest passenger car segment if you take trucks out of it, which is that compact SUV segment. So we said we want to do it right, we want to hit it hard, we want to find a volume selling electric vehicle in 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 probably one of the biggest segments, and that's really. Why I think we landed on on, on ID4. Um, in my opinion, I think proportion-wise, you know, a real compact SUV. I feel like when you get into the car, both in the front and in the rear, you really get that sense of space and feeling because you've got quite an upright C and D pillar. You know, there's adequate headroom in the rear. Um, it's not compromised like a coupe where you can't even fit an adult in the rear. So, in terms of trunk space and sort of in terms of seating space. Uh, in terms of comfort, I think it really gives you what any other compact SUV can give you, and I think that's something that you'll see comes out quite strongly in our communication. This is not an this is not an electric car where necessarily we're trying to tackle Tesla or we're trying to tackle Mustang Mach E. We believe this is a great electric car for somebody who's been looking at a you know kind of a top spec Rav4, CRV, Tiguan even, who's looking to finally make that move across to EV. We feel this car is obviously going to provide that perfect opportunity. Um, I think it's got It's very well loaded with all the standard content. Our IQ drive, driver assistance uh, package is standard, even in the entry-level trim, which starts at below $40,000. And, um, you know, when you consider that you've got available federal tax in incentives of, of up to $7,500 before you even start getting into state incentives, all of a sudden the price of this car comes in, you know, somewhere around $32,000, $33,000. Add to that that we've also thrown in three years of free fast charging uh, at Electrify America stations across the country, uh, and add on top of that that you know the the cost of fuel savings that you have over a five year period could be as much as three thousand dollars. When you stack that all up, not only do you have a car that's very practical and very fun to drive with all the loaded technology, but you also have a car that rationally all of a sudden makes a lot of sense. Um, so this is why we believe this is this is a good opportunity for those who've been kind of renewing a lease, renewing a lease, renewing a purchase, kind of considering Bev but not quite pulling the trigger. We now finally believe we've got a car to do that. And I mean, you've been you've been behind the wheel. I've been behind the wheel. I think this car delivers what what I would call true Volkswagen driving dynamics. It feels like the you know the Volkswagens of old. It sticks to the road. Suspension solid. The steering's good. The acceleration is really good. The car feels planted. It's sure-footed. Um, so it, it delivers the driving experience of, of, a, of a Golf GTI, yet it somehow gives you the space and comfort of a Tiguan. And, and it's so easy to live with nowadays. You know, it's such a car that's so simple and easy to use. You get in, you know, the Kessie system works and the car, the ignition comes on as soon as you put your bum in the seat. You engage the stalk to drive and off you go. Um, and, and then obviously, I think when you when it comes to electronics, a lot of voice activated commands. Hey, ID, I'm cold. Heat up the cabin, you know. So it just it just is so simple and easy to slot into your life. And all of a sudden, I think it's starting to make a lot of financial sense too. Again, when you're comparing those mid thirty thousand dollar 
compact SUVs out there and you can get into this car with the federal tax credits and the fuel savings and all that other stuff, it, it all of a sudden makes sense. Uh, and and that's, really, that's really our angle of attack. So Lauren is not a big fan yet of the electric car. So the Lauren, I like diesel. I still like diesel. I have two diesel <laughs> Volkswagen branded products that uh, Volkswagen Group, shall I say, that I love. Um, and I know that you still sell diesel in Europe because there's still a demand for it. Is that I assume in, in Europe? And I've been to the factory, by the way. It's absolutely impressive. And I don't know if you're still doing tours, but it, it was really worth the time. Yeah. Yeah. No, look, I, I mean, yes, obviously, I think Europe has, is still selling a couple of those diesels. Um, I mean, we, we've obviously refurbed a lot of those vehicles locally in the United States, too. And they they continue to have quite a strong um, used market. You know, I think there were there were a couple of folks and I've got a couple of buddies, too, that, you know, when when Volkswagen approached them and said, hey, you know, we want to we want to help you out of the diesel. The guy said, well, you know, I'm, I'm actually quite happy with mine. Uh, I really enjoy driving these. And I think there's definitely still a, a very strong fan base for 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 those diesels um but i do think i think the experience with id4 um and i, and I think the true testament and and the true sales tool for this car is going to be getting into it driving it and maybe even living with it for a day or two because i think once you've kind of experienced it and lived with an ev for probably two to three days i think it does become tough to get out of it yeah and people get used to know where the charging station is and where they can plug in and all that and once they 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 they, they reach that uh, learning curve or so, they they really get used to it and and they they cannot go back i guess yeah i think this is the beauty of it you know there there are a couple other benefits obviously also to driving electric i think the first thing is i think we all were were kind of born with range anxiety but, uh, you know, as you get up to 250 miles and you look at what, particularly under COVID requirements, the average American is traveling these days, you realize that probably you can maybe go a week or two on a single charge. Um, so this is the first point. The second point is, you know, whether you're going to a local shopping center or grocery store, um, the fast charging facilities are really getting you quite a quick charge, you know, a fair amount of range on quite a quick charge. Um, and then last but not least, at the end of the day, you know, if you if you want that added security of having the wall box at home, it's as simple as plugging her in at night like a cell phone and waking up to a fully charged car. So the convenience is there. You're not queuing at Costco to get gas anymore. Um, so, yes, there, there, there are a couple barriers to entry. But I think once you start living with an EV, you'll see it's it's pretty simple and pretty seamless. Lauren? Lauren? <laughs> well, you know, I, I still haven't had a chance to drive the Volkswagen, uh, the ID bus, because I think that harkens back to the super collectible 21, 23 window VW buses. And I think that was really a smart move. Are we going to see anything? I know this is kind of like asking you out of the box. Are we going to see Volkswagen Bug returning maybe in an electric form? Because I really love the Bug. I've had a couple of them and they're just a blast. Yeah. I, and I, I think the difficulty too, when you start talking Mini Cooper, you start talking Beetle and all that kind of stuff. I think the difficulty is you become... If you look at the way the U.S. market and, and not even the U.S. market, global markets have, have literally just rushed and stormed towards SUVs. Um, it does make future little projects like that for sure very tough to pencil. Um, I think coming back to your point, Lauren, on the on the 23 window, I think we've made it quite clear that we want to bring the ID buzz. Um, I think that's going to be a very emotional car for us. Um, it's going to be a very cool car coming in, in the back end of 23. Um that for sure, I think obviously in terms of price point, will sit above the ID4. Um, what I think we still need to solve is exactly what slots in underneath the ID4. And we have seen, 
you know, competitors in the market make use of smaller, more compact cars, which I, I would say is probably more for bigger city living. Um, so, yes, I do believe there is an opportunity for something a little bit more compact than the ID4 in future. Um, and exactly how we reincarnate that, uh, that new little entry car remains to be seen. Um, may, maybe some sort of a beetle or bug concept might be something cool to, to, to have as an, as an entry car again. Yeah. That's a smart idea. So, yeah. It seems that Volkswagen is really running on all wheels because, I mean, you, st you also have the Arteon, which is pretty new. I mean, like a couple, three years. Uh, the SUVs that you didn't have like 10 years ago, and now the electric cars. So it seems that uh, very good times for Volkswagen, right? It is, it is. And uh, I think the one car we haven't yet mentioned or spoken about much of is obviously the new Volkswagen Tals. Um, so, so coming back to your point, Javier, I think probably two, three, four years ago, you know, we were down to just the imported Tiguan out of Europe. Um, we then, Europe, you know, we then took that car, manufactured it uh, in, in, in our NAR region down in Puebla, made it larger, made it more suited to the American market. So that was a good step in the right direction. We then introduced the, the, the Atlas into the midsize SUV segment, which has done very well for us. Um, last time we spoke, I think it was last time this year, we introduced the Crossport, which is the five-seater derivative of that. Um, and then on top of the ID that we've just spoken about, obviously our plan in the middle of this year too is to position a compact SUV just a fraction under the Tiguan today. So yeah, going from almost zero or one SUV to call it by middle of this year, five SUVs. So that is a that is a monster lineup. Um, and then as you mentioned, we've still got a couple sedans too, and, and then obviously still the excitement around the Gulf. So Jetta continues to do very well with us, also with the, the GLI. The Passat is, is also doing uh, relatively okay in market. We've got the Arteon, which is, I would say, still quite niche. Um, we could probably do a better job on marketing that. It's a, it's a great vehicle, looks great, drives great, it's got all the features. Um, and, then, and then on top of that, as I mentioned, towards the back end of this year, we, uh, we also get the new generation Mark 8 GTI and an R. So really, uh, we're very blessed with the, with the total lineup that we have. Yeah, so you've been really busy, obviously, since the last time we saw you in Vancouver, and I hope it's not going to be another year. And by the, before that, I guess, we have to get Lauren into ID4 to convince her, okay? <laughs> Absolutely, we have to make Sounds a plan good. to get Lauren. Yeah, we have to I get into it. I would love, love to try it. I think it would be a great experience. I know when you showed it to the journalists originally, we all looked at each other and went, wow. So I'm looking forward to the wow. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you very much for your time, Hain. Um, and um, again, hope to see you very soon. Awesome. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you. Have a nice to chat. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. And we'll be back next week. Thank you for listening. For more, check us out online at totalcarscore.com. <laughs>